1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. To many people today, in fact, to the vast majority of people, both outside and inside the church of God, it is perceive that the whole notion of the fear of God is old-fashioned for old people, and it's something that is only true to the Old Testament in our Bibles. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's not the case. And even if it were something which was, in some sense, confined to Old Testament teaching, what we know is that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God lasts forever. We know what Jesus says. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And recall with me that when Paul writes, all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, the Scripture that he referred to was none other than what we today call the Old Testament. So if it's only in the Old Testament, it's relevant for us whether we accept it or not. And it is true that we are to fear the Lord, which raises a very important question. What does this mean, to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord, if you are outside the grace of God, if you do not know God, the Bible says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Now, the good news for us, parenthetically, let me make this statement. The Bible says that those who hear the voice of Jesus follow Him and He gives them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall be able to snatch them out of His hand nor the Father's hand because Jesus and the Father are one. So it's a terrifying thing for an unbeliever to fall into the hands of the living God. But the good news for us is we have no fear of falling into the hands of the living God because God, the Father, gave us to the Son and we are placed in His hand, which is a place of total, complete safety. So if you know Jesus, you don't have to fear about being punished for your sin. But if you don't know Him, You need to have that kind of dread come upon your soul. And that's what really begins to move us toward wanting to know God and grow in in grace in our relationship with God. So what does this fear of God have to do with us who know the Lord? This is what it has to do with us. We are to be people who respect Him as our Father. And there is a sense that we as parents understand this. If we're halfway decent parents, we wanted our children to respect us. In fact, we required that they respect us because we know that's what the Bible says. One of the Ten Commandments is honor 
your father and your mother, correct? And in our teaching our children to do that, what we're teaching them is in effect to honor God because that's God's will for His children's lives. So we're to live as people in Christ who have a reverential awe and fear of God. Let me appeal to four verses in the Bible. There are many, many more, but I'm going to get two representative verses from the Old Testament and make some comment upon those verses and two representative verses from the New Testament. Let's begin with Jeremiah 32:40. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Talking about the new covenant that he was going to make with his people. This is an everlasting covenant. It cannot be broken. And part of that has to do with the fact that he says that I will never turn away from doing good to them. Isn't that comforting? That the covenant that we are the beneficiaries of in this New Testament era, this new covenant era, it's a great thing. He will never turn away from doing good to us. And it will surprise you, perhaps, that part of his doing good to you and me includes his disciplining us when we get out of line. I'll talk about that a little bit more. If we go a bit further in Jeremiah 32:40, this is what we read. The next part says that I, God speaking, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. We have seen recently, as Ezekiel reports what the new covenant will be like in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, he says that God will remove from us our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And that God will also put His Spirit in us and cause us to follow Him in obedience. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? There's great assurance for us that in this new covenant, we have a new heart. It's a recreated heart. And then we have the Holy Spirit of God, none other than He Himself, who is motivating us to be obedient to the Lord. But I've never really heard a pastor, I must say, and I've listened to my preaching for 39 years, and I include myself in this, to say that one of the things that the New Covenant promises us is that He puts the fear of God in us. That's good news for me. I'm not predisposed to fear God. It's not my inclination to fear the Lord. And we know what that amounts to based on several references in the Old Testament. In Psalm 112, verse 1, it says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And then it defines what that means. Who greatly delights in his commands. I don't necessarily greatly delight in the commands of the Lord. But the presence of the Spirit of God in my life and the fear of God that God has placed in my heart, in this new heart he has given me, in the new covenant, is one which fears the Lord, so that I will not depart from him. Now think about that last phrase of Jeremiah 32:40. One of the reasons I'm sure, like me, when I was trying to raise my children, early on my wife and I would teach them, when we get into a place that you're not familiar with, you stay close to mommy and daddy. Right? Why? Because... It's a dangerous world out there. There are things that children are unaware of that can be very dangerous and detrimental to them. And so the Lord puts the fear of Himself in us so that we don't go off wandering into an arena that could be a devastating arena for us. The fear of the Lord. 
Here's another reference in the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, verse 3. When Isaiah is predicting the coming Messiah, we know Jesus is that Christ. He's the Messiah. The first quality that he indicates will be true of this Messiah is that he delights in the fear of the Lord. Jesus came to earth, and in Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible says, he said himself, that Jesus said this when he came, I have come to do your will, O my God. Now remember, Jesus is God, the Son, God the Father. He's saying to the Father, Father, I want to show reverence for you. I want to show fear for you. I want to stand in awe of you, and I will demonstrate that by doing what you want me to do. Obeying you, Lord. So there's another passage from the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is valid today, just as it was yesterday, just as it will be if Jesus doesn't come back for another million years. It's valid because the Word of God stands forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but His Word is unchangeable and always relevant to our lives. So let's go to the New Testament for a moment. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Luke writes these words in Acts 9.31. The church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. And it goes on to say that that church in that region was going forward in the fear of God. In the fear of the Lord. And the result of it was that the church actually increased, is the way the New American Standard translates it. The idea, idea is that it was multiplying. Can you envision that for a moment? The fear of the Lord was a key ingredient to the church's rapid expansion in the first century. And if you and I were somehow or another to understand how the church has moved forward. We know the Holy Spirit's the one who moves the church forward in terms of its growth, both qualitatively and quantitatively. But the fear of the Lord is wrapped up in that. We are the body of Christ. Jesus, in His body when He walked on the earth, delighted in the fear of the Lord. And to this day, He still does in His body. And a body of believers who is centered in Christ, is going to be a body of believers who fears the Lord. Who not only understands that it owes fear to Him, but actually delights in fearing Him. The commandments of God are not burdensome, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5. They are liberating, actually. When we know the truth, Jesus says, and we abide in the truth, What does he say will happen? We will be set free. And a person or a group of people who follow Jesus Christ can only be set free when they fear the Lord. Here's one more reference in the New Testament to the concept of the fear of God. It's found in the passage which teaches about the imperative nature of being filled with the Holy Spirit, being controlled by the Holy Spirit, And then Paul, after having given the command under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are all to be filled with the Holy Spirit, continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, he gives four marks of a Spirit-filled church, which is obviously made up of Spirit-filled members. In the last mark, in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, he says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. As we fear the Lord... 
The result of that is that we will be expressing the fact that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't have to fake it. You can't fake being full of the Holy Spirit. It's just what happens when a body of believers is filled with the Holy Spirit. They will be people who fear the Lord. You might think I'm making too much of this, but I don't think you can make too much of the imperative nature of our fearing God. I'll talk more about this, not today, but at a later date when we get deeper into the book because there's actually a simple command in the book of 1 Peter, fear God. We'll talk in detail more than I've talked about it today. But what God wants us to be and do as individuals and as His people, as a body, is to fear Him. How do we show fear? And why should we show fear to Him? We've already talked about how we revere Him, we respect Him, we show our fear of Him by obeying Him. But why should we? Well, this text tells us three things as to why we should do that. And it all has to do with the identity of God. Look at verse 17. And if you, and the word if, just take my word for it, it really carries the idea of sense. So let's, so let's substitute the word sense for the word if. And since you address the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. These people were already addressing God as Father. This was a rather new concept. It has some roots in the Old Testament, but not all that many. It was more a thing that Jesus instituted. If you, since you address Him as Father... Perhaps you know that in Hebrew culture, the position of father was the most honored of all positions. Even if a person happened to be a priest or a prophet or a king, the role that he would play were he married with children would be the highest role of father. More than a judge, more than a priest, more than a prophet. Being a father. Next week's Father's Day. And God willing, I'm going to talk a bit more about our role as fathers as it relates to our fearing God. I'll talk to that point next week. But suffice it to say that this passage of Scripture is really clear and it's rooted in Old Testament thinking and the Jewish culture to a great extent, viewing God as Father and one certainly to be respected. Now, here's another thing. I've already touched on it in reading it. I'm not the one touching on it. Hopefully, it's the Spirit of God touching on it. That not only is He Father, and therefore we're to fear Him, but He's also Judge, who impartially judges according to each man's work. Now, what kind of judgment is in mind here? Probably you know, based on what I've already said, that this is not having to do with a judgment for salvation. What Peter is talking about here is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and then again in Romans chapter 14 we read about it that we'll all have to stand before the judgment seat of God and then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 there's teaching about the judgment seat of Christ. This is a family judgment. Jesus was judged for you and for me when He died on the cross. Therefore, those of us who are in Christ need not fear being punished for our sin. We are going to face, and daily actually we do face, 
of family judgment, if you will. A better way of saying is, we face family discipline. We have a father. And we know, based on what the Bible teaches, that whenever we suffer certain hardships in this life, they're at the hands of that father. He's disciplining us. Isn't there a difference, fundamentally, between punishment and discipline? If you've ever stopped to think, Punishment is an end in itself. Once it's meted out, it's over. But discipline has the purpose of education, doesn't it? Educative discipline is the kind of discipline that God exercises toward us on a regular basis in this life as His children. There is coming a day, I've alluded to the references We won't look at them, but it would be good for you to study them in some detail. In 1 Corinthians 3, we can begin there, where Paul says, There is one foundation laid upon which we build our lives. And what might that be? It's Jesus Himself, correct? And then we have certain options to exercise, being children of God, as to what kind of materials we build the superstructure of our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. It could be gold, silver, and precious stones. That's a figurative way of saying things that really are precious and things which really matter. Or it could be out of wood, hay, or straw, things which are very cheap to acquire, easy to acquire, and really quite combustible. When exposed to fire, they go up very quickly in flames. Paul goes on to teach about, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will stand before the Lord. All of us who know Jesus... We're not going to be punished, so don't miss here. But we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Until this idea was brought to my attention and elaborated, you know, I just cringed at the thought I was going to have to stand before Jesus someday. And be sure, it won't be all pleasantry when we stand before, because the Scripture says that if people have built their lives out of wood, hay, and straw, they might... If they know Christ, it's possible to do this. I wouldn't advise it. But when you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, what's going to happen is you will escape the flames, but you won't have anything to show for it. At the end of an entire life used for your own personal progress and own pleasure, even religiously, religiously, it'll amount to nothing. That won't be real cool, will it? And I would advise you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If you are wondering, then how can I avoid that? You build your superstructure out of gold, silver, and precious stones. That is to say, you depend on the Lord for your life. Everything about your life. You trust Him for everything. And also, you want Him to be honored by your life. You're not oriented toward drawing attention to yourself. You're oriented toward putting the spotlight on Him. You let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In such a way, that means in dependence upon Christ. We are reflecting the life of Christ in the light of Christ as we trust in Christ. Remembering what Jesus says in John 15, He says, Apart from Me you can do nothing. I take that very literally. And I advise you to do the same. 
We are to depend upon Jesus Christ for our very lives and for what He does to us. We don't have to worry about Him lowering the hammer on us. Why? He's already lowered the hammer on Jesus, hasn't He, on our behalf. But what He wants us to understand is the real joy in our lives is in fearing Him expressed by our wanting to trust Him for everything and glorify Him and not glorify ourselves. T.S. Eliot, the noted British poet, said this in one of his writings, Life's greatest treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. This reminded me of how Jesus was harshest in his criticism of a group of people who were known as scribes and Pharisees. Why? Jesus said because they were play-acting religion. They were hypocrites. They were committing life's greatest treason, as T.S. Eliot would explain it. They did the right thing, but for the wrong reason. If you would come to a place like this on a day like this, just to check a box off saying, I've done that, I've done my religious duty for the week, be careful. That is wasteful. And you must understand that that matters not to God one way in terms of what He had designed or planned for you or for me. We are to live in this relationship of dependence upon our Lord because we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As I began talking about this experience in my boyhood, I would listen to talks about the judgment seat of Christ with very little, if any, explanation as to what it amounted to, and I would think, man, the Lord is going to put me over His lap and He's just going to wear me out at the judgment seat. <laughs> but based on what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible says the Lord will evaluate my life as a child of God. Jesus will evaluate my life and your life if we are children of God. He will evaluate our lives as to its quality, not its quantity. We will not be measured by the standards that we measure one another because man looks at the outward appearance. But what does God look at? He looks at my heart and your heart. He peers into our hearts. He knows what's there. And He's looking for a heart that is His The Bible says in the book of 1 Chronicles that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. And when we have the fear of the Lord in us, and we do if we know the Lord, and we respond properly to that presence of Christ by the Spirit in us and the fear of the Lord in us, the result is that He's got a heart which is completely His. That's something to aspire to for each man and each woman present here, each young man, each young woman present here today, that we would aspire to that because we know that our Lord is going to judge us. Now let's get to the third thing that this text teaches us. Why do we fear the Lord? Number one, He's our Father. And it's only right that we should. After all, did He give us natural life? He did. Did He give us spiritual life in the second birth? Certainly, He did that. He gave us both. It's all from Him. 
And that in itself would be enough for us to fear Him. But add to that the fact that He's our judge. And we answer to Him at the judgment seat of God, as Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, and at the judgment seat of Christ. And remember, Christ is God, so there's no contradiction there. As we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ based upon what is taught in 1 Corinthians 3, and then again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Here's the third thing. And this is awesome. This is just unbelievable. We should fear Him because He is our Deliverer. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed, let's pause just a moment. The word redeemed might better be translated ransomed. It was a word used to describe the ransoming of prisoners of war. And have you ever noticed that we can see how valuable a person who is held hostage is to the one who pays the ransom price by the amount that is paid for that person's ransoming, that person's being set free? Now think about this with me. What was the price that was paid for your ransom? What was it? His, his blood. It was His life. Because the Bible says in Leviticus 17:11, the life is in the blood. The blood is obviously in our physical being necessary for life. Lose your blood in a couple of minutes due to some tragic cutting of a vital artery in your body. What happens? You're dead. No matter how healthy your body was prior to the accident which caused the loss of that blood so quickly, you're dead. The life is in the blood. So we are ransomed by the blood of Christ. You are valuable. People run around trying to do things that build up their self-esteem. I'm going to read another book on self-esteem. I'm going to acquire a better education so I can have better self-esteem. I'm going to get a better job so I'll have better self-esteem. I'm going to acquire more things so I can have better self-esteem. I'm going to go to church more often so I'll have better self-esteem. I'm going to read a book about how I can have all of that and believe that it's going to happen. Has it happened yet? If you've been chasing that, you'll be chasing that all your life. There's a way to have the right kind of self-worth. And you have it inherently. If you know Christ, you have everything you need. You just need to know how to unlock it and how to practice it. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 9, it says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Let not the strong man boast of his strength. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows me. Do you know the key to right self-worth? It's to know God. That's it. And you can go spend the rest of your life pursuing self-esteem another way and you'll come up empty, 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 empty. And that's not to say that it's wrong to get an education. I'm all for that. I think the Lord would be too. It's not to say that it's wrong to work hard and be a good employee, maybe even a boss, a professional. It's not wrong to do those things provided you understand why you're doing them. If we're fearing the Lord and we're looking forward to a good outcome when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, how shall we work? For whom are we really working? It's the Lord Christ for whom we are working. And the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. 
You know why you should aspire to be the best you can be in your vocation? So you can stand before people and get an audience because they'll take notice. There's something different about her. There's something different about him. These people are disciplined people. And the result is it gives you a platform for the person of Jesus Christ. And that won't be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll take that with you forever, forever and ever. You'll receive a reward that cannot be taken from you in that particular situation. Well, let me get back to the Bible here just a minute. (laughs) Verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. So from what were we redeemed? A futile way of life. The word futile means empty. Some of your translations reflect that. The word means pointless. It means useless. As I was preparing what I'm sharing with you today, I thought about something I read probably two years ago now in a biography on the life of C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford Don, the great author who's influenced many of us through his book, Mere Christianity, or the Screwtape Letters of the Great Divorce, or really more of us probably through the Chronicles of Narnia. He just wrote prolifically was a brilliant man. He was one of those men who was skilled in his work and it allowed him to stand before kings and not before ordinary men only, obscure men. But one of his lines of thinking was really borrowed from Blaise Pascal, this 18th century French mathematician philosopher who in his latter life, he only lived to be about 38 or 39 years old, in his latter life, he had in the earlier life, he had been a devout Catholic churchman. He did not miss Mass any day unless he was ill. He was always striving for more. And then he finally realized that he was trying to fill up what he described as an abyss that existed in his soul. He had a hole in his soul. He had a vacuum. And he discovered that only God could fill that vacuum because it was a God-shaped vacuum. That's true of every human being who does not do Jesus, there's a vacuum there. When Lewis put his spin on that concept, he said, in every human being, there's an intense desire. Do you have that intense desire to find out why you're here, who you are, and where you're going? If you have any thoughts that are significant, you have thought, why am I here? What's my purpose here in this world? He goes on to say, Lewis does, that this could be stated another way, that in every human's life there is a chair and it's reserved for some unknown guest who is expected and hoped for by the person in whose soul that unmanned chair sits. And he says, as we go through life with this intense desire for something that will finally fulfill us, The result is we come to the conclusion that it's not to be found in this world. It has to be outside this world. And of course we know who that is. It's Jesus, right? He is in this world, but He's bigger than this. We're looking in the wrong places if we do not look to Him. And therefore, 
when we think about this feudal way of life, isn't it awesome? I could call on people here today for testimonies. Think about your life before Christ. Was it empty? Was it useless? Was it pointless? And then you met Jesus Christ and what happened? You were radically changed. It was the presence of Jesus by His Spirit in your life that changed you. And you're not the same and you never will be the same as you were before. The old has gone. The new has come is what the Bible says. Isn't it extraordinary what happens to us when we trust Jesus Christ for eternal life? It's phenomenal. So we were saved from our futile way of life. With what we were saved? Well, we've already talked a bit about that. With the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Why is this blood of Jesus precious? Well, it's precious for two reasons. And sub-reasons underneath each of those reasons. First of all, because of the person of Christ Himself. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is charging the elders at the church of Ephesus to shepherd the flock of God who He purchased with His blood. Now, God the Father didn't shed His blood for the salvation of the Ephesian church. Who shed His blood? Jesus Jesus is God, right? So it makes sense that we who are elders in the church, pastors, we should shepherd the flock of God because He's given us the charge. But the significance of that is to be found in the fact that it was with His blood. Jesus' blood was the only blood. His life is what it says. The only life that could suffice for our salvation. So that in and of itself would be enough. But He's also not simply God. He's the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. This speaks of His perfection. He was a Lamb without spot or blemish. And if you know anything about the Old Testament system of sacrifice, people were not allowed at Passover, for instance, to present a blemished, maimed Lamb. They had to find one that was on the outside, at least, free of any sort of imperfection. Jesus is, is perfect inside, most importantly, and out. And He is able to secure our salvation, to take away our sin. Let me quickly run through some things that are important for us to understand. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, the soul that sins will die. And that doesn't mean physical death. It means spiritual death. The wages of sin is what? What are the wages of sin? Death. It's talking about spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. With the punishment that never ends. Paul describes it in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as everlasting destruction. Agony that goes on and on and on. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through whom? Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that we, if we want to get to heaven on our own without the help of Christ, we've got to keep the law perfectly. And none of us has kept it perfectly. But the law of God demands satisfaction. It demands perfect keeping. And that's why Jesus is the answer. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to 
abolish the law and the prophets, speaking of what we call the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to do what? To fulfill it. He lived it to the nth degree. He did everything perfectly so that He could exchange His life for our life as a sacrifice. You will never get to heaven, nor will I, based upon our own effort, our own goodness, our own sacrifice. It has to do with Jesus. And then when He comes to live in our lives, He recreates us. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The fruit of a life which has been saved and redeemed by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ's person shows us the preciousness of His blood, but also the properties of the blood itself. And I wish we had time to go into great detail. If you're taking notes, just jot these references down. His blood justifies us. Romans 5, 9, verse 9 says this, that we are justified now through Jesus' blood. Remember what blood means? When you see the word blood, what do you refer in your mind to? It's life. Through His life, we have been justified. That means made right. There's therefore now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We're justified through faith. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. Another thing that's true of His blood, it not only justifies us, but it sanctifies us. It sets us apart so that we can be useful to the Lord. In the book of Hebrews 13, 12, the Bible says that He did what He did by dying on the cross to sanctify the people He redeemed by His own blood. Do you know the blood of Christ applies to us not just as it pertains to our entry into the family of God, but to our spiritual growth and usefulness to God. What a great gospel we have. Privilege. And to cleansing us from sin. Once we come to faith, when we get a little off the beaten path, we start walking our own way. And children do that in natural families. They do that in the spiritual family. And we've seen God disciplines us when we do that. But when we are aware, and, and let me just say this. I've been reminded of this in the last year or so since I've become a grandfather of what it was like with my children when I would discipline my son. I can remember, especially with him, I must have done more disciplining of him than I did my daughter. But I required, really wanted, and really required it that he come back to me to begin with when I started disciplining him and say he was sorry to Daddy. Remember that? When your children would do that? But you know there came a time in his life where I didn't have to make him come back. He just came back. He missed the relationship that we had when we were on the same page. And this is true for us as children of God. And the Bible says in 1 John 1, 7 that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Now, this is awesome from all sin. Not just some of it, but all of it. If we're sincere in our request for cleansing, boom, it's done. It's awesome, isn't it, what the blood of Jesus means to us? It gives us victory over Satan. The Bible says in Revelation 12.10 that the devil accuses us day and night. It's his occupation. He accuses us of our sin. When we do sin, what we sinned, long ago, and we were forgiven of, but He comes back and He nags us, He nags us. You know God can't forgive you of that. 
How in the world can he justify forgiving you of that? And you know what we say to the devil when he starts hounding us like this? By his blood, I am healed. By his blood, he says, I have victory over you, over my sin, and over the world. He transforms us, according to Revelation 5, 9, and 10, into a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. All of us comprise a kingdom of priests and priestesses. Why? Royal at that. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Since when were we delivered, redeemed, ransomed, by our Lord. Look at verse 20. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now please carefully follow what I'm about to say. God was not caught off guard when Adam sinned. Nor was He caught off guard when He looked at you as an original sinner and knew that there was nothing... that you could do except sin outside of Christ because you were living an independent life. He was not caught off guard. You know God has no plan B. There's no plan B. There's only His plan. And the whole plan of salvation is in no way to be considered an afterthought. God was not in heaven scrambling around and says, Oh my goodness, Adam sin. Oh my goodness, Adam sin. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Because what the text says here in verse 20, Jesus was foreknown... And the tense of the verb suggests in eternity. And the plan of salvation was put together because of the omniscience of God and the loving nature of God. It was put together before there was any material universe. And before there was any sinner who needed to be redeemed. Jesus was chosen to be our deliverer. This is awesome. To consider. And what the Lord does, what the Father does, what the Son does, what the Spirit does, is irrevocable because He is God. This is good news for us and such a pleasure to think about. And for what did He deliver us, redeem us, ransom us? Well, verse 20, 21 rather answers that question who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. These are references to Jesus, of course. So that your faith and hope are in God. So for what did Jesus deliver us? So we might have faith and hope in God. Remembering that without faith it's impossible to please God. And also remembering that whatever is not of faith is sin. So we might have faith John Wesley said, without Christ we should only dread, whereas through Christ we believe and hope and love. God did it all when it comes to our salvation. This deliverance plan, He did it all. He planned it. He paid for it. He brought it to us through Jesus Christ. And therefore our faith and hope, if it is valid, must of necessity be in God. And in God alone. And we show our fear of Him and reverence for Him as our deliverer when we understand this. I read a story several years ago about 
a 16-year-old young lady by the name of Anissa Ayala. She and her family lived in Walnut Creek, California, a very upscale suburb of San Francisco. Her father, 44 years of age, her mother, 41 years of age, she at 16 had developed leukemia and she was quickly dying. The only hope for her was to have a bone marrow transplant. Neither of the parents had the right blood type for that. And there was no other child in the family from whom this marrow could be harvested. They couldn't find anyone. And they did what was viewed at that time as being very dicey. What they did was is ask the Lord, would you give us a child who would have the same kind of blood marrow as our daughter who is dying? They got all kinds of criticism. This was a miracle, quite frankly. Here's why. More than one way, but this is one way. The man, the 44-year-old man, had had a vasectomy 16 years before. And at age 41, well, I just don't think most women are as fertile at 41 as they would be at 31, right? Or maybe even 21. So what happened was they went forward and a baby was conceived. She was born. Her name, Marissa Eve. And guess what? Even before she came out of the womb, through amniocentesis, it was determined she had the right stuff to be the donor. That's a miracle, isn't it? And so, at the age of 14 months, under sedation, the bone marrow was taken from little Marissa Eve, placed in the body of her then 17-year-old sister, and she completely recovered from leukemia. This is what Anissa Ayala said when interviewed after her recovery. Speaking about her little sister, I don't think I could ever repay Marissa Eve for what she's done. Now that's awesome. That's touching. But it's nothing compared to what Jesus has done for you and for me. Could you ever repay Him for what He's done for you? Do you even think about it? We can't. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf at the age of 19. He was born into wealth. His father died when he was six weeks of age. He was raised by devout grandmother, mother, and aunt in an opulent setting. He took a grand tour of Europe to tour the art museums. He loved art. He was himself, by his own profession of faith, a real believer in Christ at the time. About 18 or 19 years of age, he found himself in Dusseldorf at the Art Museum in Germany. And there was one portrait that captured his imagination. It was by Domenico Fetti, a famous Italian artist. And it was entitled Ecce Homo, which is Latin for Behold the Man, the words which Pilate said to the crowd when he released Jesus to be crucified. And as he looked at this brilliant painting, it's Jesus in the middle, two Roman guards flanking him, and crowned with a crown of thorns, he is looking into the face of anyone who looks at this 
portrait. And beneath it, this is what was written. This is what I have done for you. What have you done for me? Fast forward 150 years. A young lady by the name of Frances Havergal, also an art lover and a lover of Christ. This young lady came and she saw that portrait and she knew perhaps of what had happened with Zinzendorf who after he read that became the leader of the Moravian Brethren which was the beginning of the modern Protestant missions movement, world missions movement. He gave up the luxury of accounts life in order to be a man who took the gospel all over the world and inspired others to do the same. And the result was when this Havergal was sitting there and she looked at it, she began to pen some words. She was a poetess and she began to write words and they just kind of came freely. But when she got back to the hotel where she was staying there in Dusseldorf, she read them and she was not very impressed with what she had written. And she just decided, I'm just going to throw this in the fire. And she made an attempt to toss the poem into the fire. And the draft coming down from above caused the pages not to fall. And she took that as a sign. So she just took them, folded them up, more or less forgot them, put them away. And through conversation with her father, he wanted to hear what she had written. And he gave it to her. And then two years later, this was written. It's the words are that of a great hymn, I gave my life for thee. These are the words of the first stanza. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that that, that thou mightst ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? We can't pay Jesus back. But you know what we can give to the Lord? Every man and woman in this room can. We can give fear to Him. We can fear Him. We can give Him the reverence and the awe that is due Him. And He will be blessed and honored by that. But you bow your heads. In your own heart, if you sense that God is speaking to you today, maybe you're on the outside looking in and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today could be the day of your salvation. If Christ is speaking to you and He's nudging you in the direction of giving your life to Christ, would you just say in your heart right now, Jesus, I need You. Please forgive me. I need Your blood, Lord. I want to know You so that I can accomplish Your purpose for me. And then if you know the Lord, but you have fallen away from Him in some way, would you dare to pray to the Lord, Lord, I need to be cleansed of my rebellion against You as Your child. Thank You for disciplining me, Lord. I want to be in right relationship with You. I want to delight to do what You say and not buck you all the time when you give me direction. I want to be submitted to you today. Please, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.